You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everybody. Peter Maravellis here. I'm hoping this finds you all safe and well. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation, I'd like to welcome you to a special installment of City Lights Live. Our program tonight is called Still Outside. Kerouac at 100. This weekend, on the 12th of March, Jack Kerouac would have turned 100 years of age. Tonight, as we approach the auspicious occasion, we pay tribute, but with a keen eye upon the man's writing. As always, I'd like to mention we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatushaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area, from where we continue to feature and celebrate the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums as we approach the spring season of 2022. As most of us here are aware, the legend of Jack Kerouac has taken on mythic proportions. The commercial potential of this was recognized early on by everyone from jean companies and fashion designers to automakers. Rock stars, actors, even politicians have been quick to cite Kerouac as an influence. And yet, something's gotten lost in the mix. On the road seems to be where many people stopped in their explorations of the work. Many of the reviews of Kerouac's work were tainted with a prejudice that betrays the politics of their day. Now, it's important to remember Kerouac's work came into fruition during the McCarthy era. The country was ripe with paranoia, and the search for old and new enemies was afoot. The beat generation became a convenient scapegoat for pundits and red baiters. Kerouac himself was never a fan of the term beatnik. And might I add, neither was Lawrence Ferlinghetti, the founder of City Lights. They both shared in common a disdain for the way the mainstream corporate media was pigeonholing and vilifying writers and poets. Ferlinghetti went to jail and came very close to losing his bookstore on account of witch hunts that vilified any cultural messaging that didn't agree with a Cold War ethos. And so it's tragic, really, that once again, we find ourselves having to defend books in the light of recent renewed attempts to ban books at libraries and schools. And it wasn't by chance that reviewers downplayed the importance of Kerouac or other so-called beat authors. Kerouac's reputation as a bad boy of the beat generation in many ways detracted from a serious and earnest review of the wider oeuvre of his writing. Some significant and valuable writing remains obscured by hype and misunderstanding. What would it be like if we view Jack Kerouac and his writing with less of an emphasis on its relation to beatnik culture or the hype around his personality and more in relation to his craft and its place in the larger canon of world literature. So tonight we offer an appreciation of Jack Kerouac's unique contributions to American literature. We'll be exploring his innovations in prose, the influence of his Franco-American background, and how he discovered his unique voice. Our seven speakers will all have been for many years studying his work and are dedicated towards seeing that Jack Kerouac is recognized as a classic American writer. Our program will be organized into a series of talks punctuated by the reading of samples of Kerouac's work. We are delighted to have with us tonight, Tony Torn, 
who will be delivering the readings. Tony is an actor and director based in New York City with more than 100 stage and screen credits to his name. He directed the play Door Wide Open, Joyce Johnson's dramatization of her published correspondence with Jack Kerouac. We're really delighted to have him here with us. So we will begin our program by having Tony Torn read a passage from the book, Dr. Sachs, where Jack Kerouac remembers being born. Welcome. Thank you. It was in Centralville I was born, in Pawtucketville, saw Dr. Sachs. Across the wide basin to the hill on Lupine Road, March 1922, at five o'clock in the afternoon of a red all over supper time, as drowsily beers were tapped in Moody and Lakeville saloons, and the river rushed with her cargoes on ice over reddened slick rocks, and on the shore the reeds swayed among mattresses and cast off boots of time, and lazily pieces of snow dropped plunk from hanging branches of black, thorny, oily pine in their thaw, and beneath the red snows of the hillside, receiving the sun's lost rays, the melts of winter mixed with roars of the Miramac, I was born. Bloody rooftop, strange deed. All eyes I came hearing the river's red. I remember that afternoon. I perceived it through the beads hanging in a door. And through lace curtains and glass of a universal sad lost redness of mortal damnation, the snow was smelting. The snake was coiled in the hill, not in my heart. Our first presentation will be by Hassan Malehi. His piece is called Jack Kerouac, Child of Immigrants. To punctuate his talk, we will first have Tony Torn read a passage from Visions of Gerard. Emile Alcide de Luz, born in upriver St. Hubert, Canada in 1889. I can picture the scene of his baptism at some wind-whipped county crossing Catholic church with its iron spike Christ sp church spire high up and the paysans all dressed up the bleak font brown or yellow likely where he is baptized to go with the color of old teeth in this wolfish earth forlorn the plains of abraham the winds bring plague dust from all the way to baffin and hudson and where roads end and the iroquois arctic begins the utterly hopeless place to which the french came when they came to the new world the hardness of the Indians they must have embrothered to be able to settle so and have them for conspirators in the rebellion against contrarious potent churchy England. Winds all the way from the nostril of the moose. Coarse rough tough needs and potato fields. A little fold of honey and flesh is being presented to the holy water for life. I can see all the kinds of deluses that must have been there that 1889 day, Sunday most likely, when Emile Alcide was anointed for his grave, for the earth's an intrinsic grave. Just dig a hole and see. A few words about Hassan Malehi before we begin. Hassan Malehi teaches at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's the author of Kerouac, Language, Poetics, and Territory, the first book-length study of Kerouac's French language heritage and its large role in his writing. 
Professor Malehi has written several other books about French and English literature and philosophy. He is also a poet. His first collection, A Modest Apocalypse, was published in 2017. Please join us in giving him a warm welcome. Thank you, Peter. It would be hard to say just how thrilled I am to be part of this 100th birthday celebration put on by City Life's Books, a place that for decades has been a shrine to me. When I came to San Francisco in 1980 at age 20, it was one of the first places I went. As I wandered among the shelves, the writers I'd admired from a distance were suddenly present and real. I'd just hitchhiked across the country from Connecticut with On the Road in my backpack, this copy. I'd started reading it that summer and before I got far, dropped out of the University of Connecticut and decided to live my dream of moving to California. An unhappy science major for two years, I felt stuck at a college I'd known since infancy. My father taught electrical engineering at UConn and destiny kept me there. But Kerouac empowered me to change destiny. And UConn gave me Kerouac. I'd heard his name from my late era hippie type friends. All I knew was he was a writer, like I wanted to be, who traveled to the West Coast, like I wanted to do. A big reason his name floated above the trees and ponds of Storrs, Connecticut, was because of a certain professor. On a beautiful day in the fall of my second year, nine or 10 months before I hitchhiked out, a friend enthusiastically introduced me to his English professor, Anne Charters. A few months later, in midwinter, I was combing the shelves of the Zeezing Brothers Book Emporium, a stunning jewel in the nearby mill town of Willimantic, and I saw a biography of Kerouac by my friend's stellar professor. Next to it was this copy of On the Road. Both were used books, so I could afford them. I can even show you. It says 80, 80 cents. I'm not sure how well you can see that. It says 80 cents. And uh, that was probably about a tenth of my weekend budget in those days. And, and I was only able to spend it because it was a Saturday. But that, that copy of Anne's biography didn't survive years of parties and moves. Books disappear from the shelves sometimes. So I have this recent one, Anne Charter's biography of Kerouac, the first biography of Kerouac. Up to then, the northeast corner of Connecticut was most of what I knew of the world. Unlike the Connecticut of placid houses and rolling hills that a lot of people think of, the so-called quiet corner is one old industrial town after another, the landscape between them dotted with small family farms. At the time, lots of the factories were closing. It was immigrant territory. In school, my friends were of fairly recent Polish, Czech, or Italian heritage especially French-Canadian. Brousseau, Aslan, Lizzie, Pelletier, Chartier, Messier, Gauthier, and Jean-Christophe, these were the completely accurate pronunciations as they were said. These were names filling the roll sheets in my high school. My parents were immigrants. They'd come to the US for graduate school, not to work in the factories, but in our, in our little farming town, they felt at home. Both were from countries that had once been under French rule. My father was from Egypt, where General Bonaparte's triumph propelled his bid to become Emperor Napoleon. Then he conquered neighboring European countries, including my mother's native Netherlands. 
As happens often enough, strangely, in countries once under imperial rule, respect lingers with the language and culture of the conquerors. Both my parents knew some French. Both thought French was one of the great languages of civilization. So I studied it in school and kept it up in college. What did I discover when I read Kerouac? Not just the dreamy traveler, not just the advocate of free love and marijuana, but a fellow child of immigrants. One reason I loved Sal Paradise is his aunt spoke Italian to him. Just as Dutch and Arabic were often spoken in my family home, though I didn't understand much. After I moved to Santa Cruz, California and settled into my low wage job and cheap rental, I bought one Kerouac after another and found out he was from the French Canadian community. Like so many of the kids I'd known. In Dr. Sachs, Jack's tender descriptions of the streets, houses and mills of his native Lowell, Massachusetts, just an hour and a half from where I'd grown up, could have been of Willimantic, the nearby mill town. And the power of Jack's prose taught me immense amounts about the country that I'd finally set out to see. He credited his own literary achievements to study. Proust, Rabelais, Joyce, Goethe, Shakespeare, and Céline were a few of the names I encountered, some of them for the first time, on the pages of his book that he wrote about with reverence, of his pages of his books. In California, I returned to college, studying philosophy and literature. Then I did a PhD at the University of Minnesota. I became a professor of French literature. 10 or 12 years later, it was time to repay the debt. Jack's prose still sent shivers up my spine, and especially since in most of his novels, his narrator and characters speak French. Jack Duduos is the, is the, is the name uh, most commonly that, is, that his narrator has. I thought there was something bilingual about his English, that he was someone who felt foreign, like I did, and came to the language from the outside. I checked around and found that there'd been some, but not much exploration of this side of Jack. It didn't take me long to figure out that he was a member of an immigrant community that had been treated as outsiders in the US, but that also earlier in Quebec, the same community had looked to France as a distant lost homeland. The migration that brought his family to the US took place between 1840 and 1930, and involved around 900,000 people, an astounding half of the inhabitants of Quebec in those 90 years. It came about through devastating farming conditions and relatively good wages across the southern border. The situation was seriously aggravated by economic discrimination by the British, who had ruled all of Canada since the 1760s, and who had, after the conquered French, had rebelled in the 1830s enacted an official policy of cultural and linguistic assimilation. They were going to turn these French people into good English-speaking citizens and also encourage attendance at the Anglican rather than the Catholic churches. Jack says the, the, the churchy English. This wasn't welcomed by the French speakers. Many fiercely held on to their language, determined to become independent from British Canada, maybe by rejoining the old mother country. France. As the southward migration ramped up, community leaders sounded the alarm. If so many were leaving, could there ever be a French-speaking Quebec? 
One response to this question was that the migrants were on a divine mission. God was sending them on the road to Anglophone North America to spread the blessedness of old world Catholicism. Close ties were kept up with the communities all over New England. And these ideas were spread through Catholic churches, excuse me, Catholic schools and French language newspapers. Many French language newspapers all over New England. Every town that had a few hundred French speakers had a French language newspaper. Community identity was strong and frequently met with hostility. Dubbed the Chinese of the Eastern States in the late 19th century and in the early 20th century resurgence of white supremacy, the resurgence that put Confederate monuments all over the Southern US, they were called an inferior race. This is what Jack grew up with. I realized that his fascination with the road had to do with migration that he watched the French language, which he'd spoken before English, going out of existence in the very community where he'd learned it. That he reacted by writing bits of French in his work and writing in an English that often sounds oddly foreign. He sometimes declared his own divine mission, which early on he called beat, a word that partly means beaten down, like the people he hailed from. And when pronounced in French becomes béat, blessed. But in his sense of moving between languages, cultures, and religions, he loved all of them, as is clear in his many depictions of people of different heritages. He wrote in English because it was the dominant language of the country he lived in. He wrote the way he did so he could challenge and expand that language and the country's ideas of its place in the world. And he wrote quite a lot in French too, which my friend Jean-Christophe Cloutier will tell you about. When I made these discoveries, I did what we academics do, which was to attend conferences where I could share them. I met Anne Charters again, and I met Tim Hunt, who also sees, Jack's, who also sees language in Jack's work as taking on a life of its own. When I became a fixture in the New York Public Library, digging through Jack's uncountable papers, I met Joyce Johnson, who was working on her wonderful biography of Jack, The Voice Is All. Through Joyce, I met Regina Weinreich and Ann Douglas, both top-notch scholars. And in the meantime, I also got to know David Amram, a French speaker who knows Jack treasured his native language. And Jean-Christophe, a native speaker who did the best job possible editing and translating Jack's French language writings. All of them are my friends and each has played an important role in how I appreciate Jack. I've met Peter and Tony only recently and only virtually, but I'm honored to join them and everyone else this evening in wishing Jack a happy hundredth. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Professor Mulehi, our next presentation is by Jean-Christophe Cloutier. It is titled Jack Kerouac's Poetics of Translation. Jean-Christophe Cloutier is Associate Professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania. He is the editor of La Vie est Dommage, which gathers the original French writings of Jack Kerouac, and he also translated into English two of Kerouac's French novels, for the Library of the Americas, The Unknown Kerouac. He is currently completing an extensive study of Kerouac's oeuvre that 
explores the writer's practices as a novelist, translator, and archivist. To open the session, John Christophe and Tony Torn will read from La Nuit est ma femme, the novella Kerouac wrote in French in 1951, just before he wrote On the Road. Thank you. So uh, this is La Nuit et ma femme, just uh, three paragraphs I'll read in French, and then uh, Tony will read the, the English translation paragraph by paragraph. Je suis Canadien Français, né au monde à New England. Quand je passais chaque souvent Français. Quand je rêve, je rêve souvent Français. Quand je braille, je braille toujours en Français. Et je dis, j'aime pas ça, j'aime pas ça. C'est ma vie dans le monde que je veux pas, mais je l'ai. Je suis encore curieux, j'ai toujours faim. Ma santé est excellente, j'aime ma petite femme. J'ai pas peur de marcher loin. J'ai seulement pas peur de travailler fort. D'abord, j'ai pas besoin de travailler 60 heures par semaine. Je suis pas capable de me lever le matin, mais quand il faut que je me lève, je me lève. Je suis capable de travailler 40 heures par semaine si j'aime l'ouvrage. Si je l'aime pas, je quitte. I am French-Canadian, born in New England. When I'm angry, I often curse in French. When I dream, I often dream in French. When I cry, I always cry in French. And I say, I don't like it, I don't like it. It's my, it's my life in the world that I don't want, but I have it. I'm still curious, I'm still hungry, my health is excellent, I love my little woman. I'm not afraid to walk far. I'm not even afraid to work hard as long as I don't need to work 60 hours a week. I can't get up in the morning, but when I do, I get up. I can work 40 hours a week if I like the job. If I don't like it, I quit. J'ai rêvé trop longtemps que j'étais un grand écrivain. J'ai appris ça dans les livres. Il y avait un temps que je pensais que chaque mot que j'écrivais était immortel. J'embarquais ça avec un gros cœur romantique. Ça, c'est possible dans les jeunes. D'abord, j'ai usé des grands mots fancy, des grosses formes, des styles. Il avait rien à faire avec moi. Quand j'étais un enfant en Nouvelle-Angleterre, je mangeais mon supper sur la terre, puis je me suis la gueule avec la guenille de vaisselle. Fini, puis je sortais. Pourquoi les grands mots, les gros lyriques pour exprimer la vie? Eh oui, j'ai dormi autour des arbres de pommes, pareil comme Shakespeare. I dreamed for too long that I was a great writer. I picked it up in books. There was a time when I thought that every word I wrote was immortal. I embarked upon this with a great romantic heart. This is possible in the young. At first, I used big fancy words, big form styles that had nothing to do with me. When I was a child in New England, I ate my supper at the table and wiped my mouth with a dish rag. Done and gone. Why the big words, the grand lyrics to express life? Yes, I have also slept around apple trees, same as Shakespeare. J'ai jamais eu une langue à moi-même. Le français patois jusqu'à six ans. Et après ça, l'anglais des gars du coin. Et après ça, les grosses formes, les grandes expressions de poètes, philosophes, prophètes. Avec tout ça aujourd'hui, je suis tout mélangé dans ma gamme. I never had a language of my own. French patois until six years old, and after that, the English of the guys on the corner. And after that, the big forms, the lofty expressions of poets, philosophers, prophets. With all that today, I'm all mixed up in my noggin. Thanks, Tony. Thank you, Tony. Okay. Uh, well, thank you, Tony. Thanks, everyone, for uh, having me. I'm uh, thank you, Tony, especially for joining me in this uh, bilingual reading of bilingual Jack Kerouac. 
Um, so yes, I, as they said, I'm Jean-Christophe Cloutier, and I just want to say how incredible it is for me to uh, be, you know, what an honor it is for me to be part of this panel. All of the federal panelists that are here have been so incredibly influential and informative for me. To, to share the stage with them, it feels very surreal and maybe even transgressive, but I would say transgressive in that good beat kind of a way, so maybe it's not so bad. Um, so yes, thank you very much. I'm going to share my screen. I have a, a few little slides to uh, to share with you today. Let's do it. All right. These days, as uh, Peter said, I'm an English professor at the uh, University of Pennsylvania, but I'm originally from Beaupas, Quebec. So I'm Quebecois, which is part of the largest French-speaking community on the American continent. We used to be called French Canadians or Canucks or Canadiens. And so I say all this because as Hassan has just explained so kindly and beautifully, I'm from the same community that Kerouac and his family come from. The Kerouacs were proud French Canadians who came down from Quebec to work in the mills of New England. So in that sense, and in our shared French-English bilingualism, I've long felt a kinship with Kerouac. But it was especially through reading Kerouac's Satori in Paris that I viscerally felt the extent of that kinship. In that book, he says, I'll use my real name here, full name in this case, Jean-Louis Lebris de Kerouac. And throughout the novel, he includes many lines in French Canuck or Quebecois French, which for me was this incredible and overwhelming experience of immediate recognition. It's hard to describe how powerful such an experience can be. I think in part of its power lies in its unexpected nature because you, did, you never kind of expect to, you don't expect to meet yourself, so to speak. And I think this is what the Gen Z kids call uh, being seen, which is not a, 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 an expression that I particularly like, I feel seen, but I have to admit that I felt seen. Uh, anyway, all this to say that this moment of, of recognition triggered a lifelong passion for Kerouac and led me to study his works very closely. So as you heard in the passage that Tony Turner and I read uh, out loud from The Night is My Woman, Kerouac tells us that he curses in French, he dreams in French, and always cries in French. Of course, embedded in all this is that he also writes in French, even though he never really told anyone about those French manuscripts. That said, Kerouac did often bring up his French-Canadian background and his bilingualism, what he once called in a journal his Canuck dualism crap. And when you add them all up, scattered as these reflections are in his letters, notebooks, journals, poems, and novels, it's almost unbelievable that Kerouac's reception, especially in the United States, has largely ignored for so long this fundamental aspect of his writing life. So tonight, I thought I'd share with you some of the choicest quotes by Kerouac that really helps us understand how formative Kerouac's French-Canadianness and bilingualism really are to his breakthrough achievements as a new kind of American writer. Indeed, Kerouac is an author who himself seems to be translated from the French, so to speak. Uh, as you can see here, if I can get to my slide. Okay, so. You can see here Jean-Louis Kerouac translated from the French of Mexico, right? As if he himself is the, the, the being being translated from the French. This notebook page is from one of Kerouac's earliest attempts to translate his longest French novel, Sur le Chemin, which means on the road or on the path. Let me now turn to two letters where Kerouac brings up translation as a necessary means toward publication of French works. The first letter is from September, 1950. 
Kerouac is writing to the Franco-American literary critic Yvonne Lemaitre in response to her favorable review of his first novel, The Town and the City. The letter as a whole is really an astonishing confessional document regarding Kerouac's French-Canadian identity, but I'll cite two kind of snip, precise snippets here. The first, all my knowledge rests in my French-Canadianness and nowhere else. The English language is a tool lately found, so late, I never spoke English before I was six or seven. At 21, I was still somewhat awkward and illiterate sounding in my speech and writings. What a mix up. The reason I handle English words so easily is because it is not my own language. I refashion it to fit French images. So it's really an astonishing statement. And a particular note here is how he speaks English as a foreign language that he refashions to fit French images. Later in this same letter, Kerouac announces, Someday, madame, I shall write a French-Canadian novel with the setting in New England in French. It will be the simplest and the most rudimentary French. If anybody wants to publish it, I mean Harcourt, Grace, or anybody, they'll have to translate it. So now let's look at the second letter, which comes uh, a little over two years later after this prophecy of writing a French novel has actually been fulfilled. Now it's January 1953. Kerouac is writing to his friend Neil Cassidy to announce that he has just written a novel in French. In Mexico, after you left, I in five days wrote in French a novel about me and you when we was kids in 1935, meeting in Chinatown with Uncle Bill Balloon, your father and my father and some sexy blondes in a bedroom with a French-Canadian rake and an old model tape. You'll read it in print someday and laugh. It's the solution to the on-the-road plots, all of them, and I will hand it in as soon as I finish translating and typing. So on the one hand, this letter is particularly precious because it positions, it positions this French novel as the solution to the on-the-road plots, all of them, which is, again, quite the statement. And the French novel in question is Sur le Chemin uh, that I alluded to earlier, which was composed in mid-December 1952 in Mexico City. I've always found it also particularly poignant that Kerouac writes his longest French-Canadian novel down south in Mexico a kind of a compositional history that stitches together so much of the American continent. But what I'd like to underscore here also from this letter is he says, you'll read it in print someday only after he's finished translating and typing the French manuscript. So as you can see, when it comes to being in print, both letters point to translation into English as the only option. So in the early 1950s, it was inconceivable for Kerouac to think of his native language in written form as publishable. This reflects a struggle for legitimacy that Quebecois literature was also facing and would actually can really overcome only uh, two decades later. So Kerouac exists in a state of forced alienation in terms of his language's literary potential. All his French writings would be foreclosed to a wider public unless they could be translated into English. Here, I think we can begin to feel just how emotionally damaging this rigid publishing impossibility must have felt. If the best writing, as he says, is, sorry, I thought I had a slide here. If the best writing, as Kerouac writes in Essentials of Spontaneous Prose, is always the most painful, personal, wrung out, tossed from cradle, warm, protective mind, and if the language of his cradle, warm, protective mind is French, then the spontaneous method is always kind of already compromised or perhaps mediated by these complex processes of translation. The impossibility of having a full artistic life in French is a topic he broaches directly in his journal of 1951 published in The Unknown Kerouac. He writes, 
Il faut vivre en anglais. C'est impossible vivre en français. So you have to live in English. It's impossible to live in French. This is the secret thought of the Canuck in America. It's important to the English, so the Canuck does it. Now, 1951 is also the year when Kerouac types out the, his famous on the road scroll, right? And just before he does, as Joyce Johnson points out in The Voice is All, he writes his French masterpiece, The Night is My Woman, that Tony and I just read from. In that novel, Kerouac confesses that the person he is when he lives in English is different than his original self. He says, some rich young friends came to get me from New York to return to college in their car. With them, I spoke in English and I was a completely different man. This duality is something that repeatedly haunts him for his entire life. A 1950 entry in one of his road logs underscores this inner conflict caught between pride and shame, French and English. He writes of having a vision of a French-Canadian older brother, kind of like the ghost of Gérard, who tells him that he should not try to de-French himself. His older brother orders Kerouac to pense en français, think in French. Kerouac then interprets the meaning of the vision in his journal with the following. I think he is my original self returning after all the years since I was a child trying to become an aglais in Lowell from shame of being a Canuck. I never realized before I had undergone the same feelings that any Jew, Greek, Negro, or Italian feels in America. So cleverly had I concealed them, even from myself. And then he concludes, I will resolve the thing by anglicizing my Frenchness or Frenchifying my English, whichever way works. In fact, Kerouac has been performing and pondering on this kind of bilingual alchemy for a while. A fascinating short text from 1949 called Private Philologies Kerouac moves from a discussion of Chaucer to address how entangled French and English are in the forming of new modern words. He writes, the pity of removing the strong Y in English along with the lolling French L and purring R extant in Irish washerwomanhood and most dearly the soft G for if you read the above as it should be French-like, the glory of pure English, which is so French, dims our present advanced English. We now make words like junket for pilgrimage. Junket sounds like an old Model T, like a Model T Ford. Soon, therefore, we will invent a 1950 Buick word, a speedy word, one with eyes like the snarling headlamp eyes on new cars with radiator shark fangs. Jaunt? This passage teases out not only how Kerouac ruminates on the history of language and linguistic invention, but also suggests how for him, pure English is something that should be considered French-like because English is so French. <laughs> so this bilingual alchemy, he feels, will inevitably lead to the invention of new speedy words that will constitute what he calls brilliant counter-poetry, which he then defines as the new American phrasings that recognizes the poetry of the original. But for Kerouac, to recognize the poetry of the original means to retain traces of the original French in his steel trap brain. This is, after all, the writer who wrote to Allen Ginsberg in 1952, shortly before writing Sur le Chemin, at this moment, I'm writing directly from the French in my head. In fact, one of his short French pieces from 1951, Kerouac declares that his writerly career will be defined by a precise order of French first and English second. L'ouvrage de ma vie sera écrit dans la langue que j'ai commencé la vie avec. L'anglais, ça viendra le deuxième tour de composition. My life's work will be written in the language that I began my life with. English will come the second round of composition. 
So what's particularly tantalizing about this declaration is that it turns everything he's ever published into a revision of sorts, something that comes in the second round, and thus not only complicates what we think of as spontaneous prose, but positions all his published works as translations of a certain kind. Today, with the benefit of hindsight, I think we can discern Kerouac's bilingual alchemy as the powering the engine of his revolutionary modern prose. Let me now conclude by turning to one of Kerouac's most challenging texts where multilingual alchemy is taken to even greater extremes, Old Angel Midnight. To me, Old Angel Midnight is a text that exists in a liminal space between languages where words and sounds and meaning are in flux. They are on the road toward various possible translations and Kerouac is kind of capturing them midair to set them down on paper to erect his Babel Tower. Although Old Angel Midnight is primarily structured in English and in this way very closely resembled James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, there is a significant amount of phrases in the poem written in French. One of these moments has always profoundly touched me. In section 18, as part of an answer to the question, why won't you listen to Old Canuck? Kerouac asks another question, this time in French. Pourras-tu jamais faire dire tes grandes écritures? which if one were to translate this in English would mean, won't you ever be able to have your great writings speak for themselves? When you consider the history of Kerouac's reception in this country, especially in his lifetime, this is a heartbreaking question. And even more so when you consider that for him to ask the question in French might suggest that his great writings include those he secretly composed in French. And yet, even though as this event title reflects, Kerouac is still outside and still waiting for his writings to speak for themselves. I do have faith that one day, perhaps soon, it will indeed be the great writings he left us that we'll finally be able to hear speaking above the babble. Thank you. Thank you so very much for that, John Christophe Cloutier. And now, next up, we have Joyce Johnson. Her presentation is titled, how On the Road Started a Cultural Revolution. I'm gonna to bring Tony Torn back with us once again. Tony is going to be reading a letter Jack wrote to Joyce Johnson from Berkeley in June, 1957. Dear Joyce, pacing up and down in my yard yesterday, I bethought myself about you don't know how to say this, so I'll just say it honestly. I don't want you to be disappointed by San Francisco, but it's really nowhere. In the few weeks I've been here, I've been stopped four times and my name taken four times for walking in the street after midnight. One time fined $2 for going through a red light. And as you know, there's all this other cop trouble impounding people's poetry books. And God knows what will happen to Evergreen Review number two, which also has Howl in it, or Gregory's book of poems, Gasoline, or anything in this mad, silly, stupid place, which is now a culture for old people on retirement. Cops prowling around all night to keep the streets absolutely quiet. In other words, to protect anyone from having fun. In short, I am slowly being driven out of California, which I loved when I first got here because it was so wild, so end of the world-ish, and has now fallen into the hands of total police authority. God help us if this really spreads back east. In fact, I foresee now 
unless New York remains too big and wild and ungovernable, and I can live there fairly as I please as of yore, I can foresee being driven out of America altogether. Wow. <laughs> Thank you for that, Tony Torn. And now a word about Joyce Johnson. She is a writer, editor, memoirist, and educator. She has written eight books, three of them novels. She was with Jack Kerouac in 1957 at the age of 21 when On the Road is published. Her writings on Kerouac include her memoir, Minor Characters, which won a National Book Critics Circle Award, also A Door Wide Open, a beat memoir in letters, and her 2012 biography of Jack, The Voice is All, The Lonely Victory of Jack Kerouac. As an editor, she was responsible for bringing out Visions of Cody, the book Kerouac considered his masterpiece in 1972. She has taught writing at Breadloaf Writers Conference, the University of Vermont, NYU, and at Columbia University's MFA program. I have to add that it was Joyce who proposed and played a very, very important role in organizing this celebration tonight. And we really could not have done it without her. So. It is such a great pleasure to have her back again with us here at City Lights. Welcome, Joyce. Thank you so much, Peter. And thank you, Tony, for that wonderful reading. I'm delighted to be here tonight with so many wonderful writers and scholars. Most books come out and vanish pretty quickly, leaving trails of silence behind them. In 1950, that had been the fate of Jack Kerouac's first novel, The Town and the City when despite an initial flurry of promising attention, the 28-year-old writer soon realized he need not have worried that losing his obscurity might be bad for him. Now it was halfway through 1957 and none of his other work had been published, although he kept stubbornly writing his unacceptable novels. There were five of them by now, all published in heaven, as Allen Ginsberg had put it in his introduction to the pocket-sized paperback of Howell, which had just been seized by the San Francisco police. Howell had been impounded on the grounds that its title poem was obscene, though perhaps that had only been an excuse to suppress it. While Howell was just a poem by a relatively unknown poet published by the small, brave City Lights Press, it was dangerous with its fierce indictment of America as a Moloch that devoured its young and those who did not live according to its norms. It was a time when there was little open dissent in America. Memories of the lives that were ruined earlier in the decade during the hearings of the House Un-American Activities Committee had not lost their potency. Imagine, Jack wrote me from Berkeley in June, soon after the raid on city lights, one woman writing in the paper, if Jesus Christ was alive, he would have led the police to the bookstore to impound Powell and all that kind of negative old woman attitude all over the place with all those new dreary neat cottages and clean streets with white lines and signs that say walk, stop, don't walk. I can't stand it. He said he was sorry he'd ever suggested my coming to California that summer since he could foresee being driven out of America altogether. If Howell had been impounded, what would happen now to on the road? Jack's greatest fear was that given the heightened appetite for book banning, Viking Press might decide against publishing his second novel, which they were supposed to bring out that September. 
Of all his books, On the Road had been the most difficult one to write, although the original idea had come to him 12 years earlier, not long after the war. A young man trying to lift himself out of a pessimistic mood after some debilitating illness takes a road trip across America that he hopes will reinvigorate him, encountering a series of symbolic characters. Jack had jotted those first thoughts down in a notebook even before he met Neil Cassidy, a rootless Western youth who had been raised at a Denver flop house, taken joy rides in one stolen car after another in his teens, and who had more restless dynamic energy than anyone Jack had ever met, as well as a riveting digressive way of speaking and writing letters. In the summer of 1946, after Neil had streaked through New York with his 16 year old bride, and returned to Denver, Jack took the first of his hitchhiking trips westward to reconnect with him. In his first attempt to ride on the road two years later, he merged himself with Neil in a character called Ray Smith. After that idea failed, each of his subsequent fictional protagonists would have a Neil-like alter ego, while Jack remained determined not to write a second autobiographical novel. There was a prejudice against fiction writers who worked too closely from their lives. The problem was that the book refused to be written in any fictional version Jack came up with. In the summer of 1949, the two main characters were half brothers whose father was a Colorado rancher. By the fall of 1950, they'd become a 12 year old Franco-American boy and his uncle. Abandoning that idea, he tried to write the whole thing in French, but none of those efforts, some of them lengthy, seemed good enough to hold his interest. They each lacked a voice that met some indefinable standard of perfection in his mind. Then, in the spring of 1951, following an outpouring of letters to Neil, filled with Jack's childhood memories, and by La Nuit et Ma Femme, a memoir-like novella based on his own experiences, On the Road came to him whole, like a poem, carrying with it the first person, subtly French-inflected voice in English, he should have been writing it in all along, filling him with such certainty about how to get it down on paper that he'd written the book straight through in three weeks, eliminating opportunities to interrupt the high of his rush of imagination the second thoughts that might come as he put a new page in his Remington, he typed it as one continuous paragraph on a scroll he'd made from glued together sheets of Japanese drawing paper. He had loved On the Road in its raw original form where he hadn't changed the names of any of the friends he wrote about or even his own French one. But right away in order to get editors to consider it, he'd had to make it less great breaking up his river of words as he chopped it into paragraphs and chapters, sitting so long at the typewriter as he retyped the whole thing that he nearly died of thrombosis and ended up in the hospital. And after all that, no one had wanted it anyway until Viking bought it in 1954 and shelved it for the next three years, unwilling to let it go, but reluctant to put it into print. It was probably the rising interest in the beat generation that had made Viking finally decide to publish that fall. And now Jack felt even that was in doubt, despite all the editing he reluctantly agreed to. He himself had done something to On the Road that he was secretly ashamed of, 
made his protagonist now called Sal Paradise into an Italian American, fearing people wouldn't want to read about a Canuck. By July, he was in Mexico, where whatever happened on the road in the States would be a very distant rumble. Writing to me hours after a huge earthquake had rocked his hotel and leveled portions of Mexico City, he urged me to join him there as soon as possible. We'll do our writing and cash our checks at big American banks, he wrote me, and eat hot soup at market stalls and float on rafts and flowers and do the rumba in mad joints with 10 cent beers. When we got tired of all that, Jack said, we'd move to a cottage with flower pots in the window in some very quiet village, but we didn't specify how long we'd be there. I had to go. Do what you want, always do what you want, he'd always told me in the six months that I'd known him. But now he was saying he needed me. I was 21 and I was about to get a check for $500, which Jack said would last me for a year because I just sold the novel I was writing to a publisher. And as Jack had quickly understood when he met me, I was looking for something, some big romantic adventure that would sweep me away from anything resembling one of those constricted little lives ordinarily assigned to young women. Evidently, I'd been turning beat for a few years without knowing it. So as soon as I could, I gave up my job as a publishing secretary and my gloomy furnished apartment near Columbia and bought a plane ticket to August 21st. But a week before I got to use it, Jack left his hotel room on Orizaba Street and went to his mother's house in Orlando, Florida. He needed to recover there from the Asiatic flu. He'd been too sick, too broke to wait for me in Mexico on his own. I don't want you to be confused, he wrote, promising to see me in New York very soon. Despite his fears, On the Road was coming out on schedule, and there were already signs of advanced interest in it. On September, September 4th, looking weary from his long journey, he walked into the apartment I had just moved into on the top floor of a brownstone on West 68th Street. I had wired him the $30 that enabled him to travel by bus. Otherwise, he would have had to hitchhike. Jack had no idea his hitchhiking days were about to end permanently, or that in a little while, thousands of Americans would know his name, a name that would almost become a household word. I remember he was wearing a bright blue Hawaiian shirt that I thought was gonna look weird in the gray flannel capital of the world. How unprotected it made him seem. He was wearing it at midnight as we stood by a newsstand on 66th and Broadway, reading the review that had just come out in the morning edition of the Times. Jack seemed more stunned than excited when he handed it to me and asked if it was good. Just the words historic occasion in its opening sentence told me it was spectacular. By pure chance on the road had found its ideal reader, Gilbert Milstein, a Sunday Times staffer who was subbing for the daily reviewer Orville Prescott. When Prescott got back from his vacation, he would tell Milstein, that he would have written how much he loathed on the road. He would never ask Milstein to review another book. Comparing Jack to Hemingway, Milstein pronounced him the avatar of the beat generation, praised the almost breathtaking beauty of his writing and wrote in such a passionate way about the search for affirmation undertaken by Jack's characters that it sounded as though he'd recognized it 
as his own search as well. On the Road was about to have that same immediate impact upon thousands of other readers. Although Milstein, who was in his early 40s, tried to maintain an objective tone, it was clear that he identified with the Beat Generation, who, as he put it, had been born disillusioned and grown up feeling the weight of the imminence of war, the barrenness of politics, and the hostility of society. The Beat Generation was unimpressed, he wrote, even by material well-being. It does not know what, the refuge, what refuge it is seeking but it is seeking. Milstein suggested that On the Road might be condescended to by neo-academics or official avant-garde critics whom it had made uneasy. And there was also the possibility that it would be dealt with superficially by those who did not understand its importance. But the uproar that would begin the following day would go far beyond anything he had anticipated. Although On the Road was a no sense protest novel, Jack had written something with tremendous subversive power. At a time when America was becoming blinded by its post-war success, he had looked past the American dream and projected a very different way of being in a voice that was extraordinarily compelling to those whose accumulated angst was at the point of boiling over. After the long wait that had been so costly for him, On the Road had come out at exactly the right moment. I need a drink, Jack said as we walked away from the newsstand. I couldn't figure out why he still didn't seem to share my excitement. He read the review a few times more as we sat in a bar in Columbus Avenue, but did not say what he was thinking. Not until 60 years later did I find a clue to what may have been on his mind, as I read a page in one of his 1957 notebooks in the Berg Collection at the New York Public Library. The Jack Kerouac archive had only recently become available for research there after being withheld from scholars and a succession of frustrated biographers for four decades. While he was alone in Mexico City, Jack had realized that he no longer believed in the Beat Generation. It was nine years since he first named it in the midst of a conversation with his friend, the young novelist John Clellan Holmes, that had thrilled both of them. But now he felt it no longer existed not the way he'd first thought of it, or with the people he used to call furtives, whose lives as illegals had inspired him in 1948. Most of them had soon disappeared into jails or houses, rather than forming a subterranean spiritual movement that might spontaneously rise to the surface. Meanwhile, Holmes had run with his idea and changed it, while giving Jack due credit. In an article entitled, This is the Beat Generation, that had appeared in the Sunday Times Magazine in 1952. Jack's beat generation lived out on the margins of American society where they had learned to exist from the bottom of their minds outward. They included drug addicts like the ones whom Jack had encountered on 42nd Street, outlaws like Neil, black people. He too felt like one of these furtives with his unacceptable identity as a Franco-American, his poverty, and his low expectations for success. And on the road, Sal Paradise would chide himself for having white ambitions. Yet Jack's original poetic vision was wildly hopeful. With a vanguard of fed up black beboppers, he could imagine the beat generation forming a great procession that would lead the world out from under the shadow of the atomic bomb 
into a future of joy and apocalyptic love, as he explained in a letter to a couple of skeptical acquaintances in December 1948. In the Berg collection, I found the copy Jack had made for himself. The beat sensibility, as Holmes saw it four years later, was already unconsciously shared by many younger Americans. It needed only to be recognized to be widely embraced. The beat generation, as he described it in his article, was implicitly middle-class and white, even privileged. This affected young businessmen replaced Jack's furtives, a fresh-faced suburban teenager, rather than an habitué of an all-night cafeteria on 42nd Street, spoke of how she found community when she spoke marijuana with her friends. Jack's vanguard of black beboppers was nowhere to be found. I was a sophomore at Barnard College when that article came out, and I can remember the students I knew talking about it, wondering if that word beat applied in any way to them. It had in fact been Gilbert Milstein who had commissioned Holmes's piece for the Times, and it was their shared definition of who was in the beat generation that caused a furor in 1957, although most of the rage and disapproval would be directed at Jack. Incense columnists warned that if America went beat, there'd be a wave of juvenile delinquency. Academicians at Columbia, Jack's alma mater, shuddered in their ivory tower and prepared to defend the literary tradition. The Henry Luce publishing empire immediately went to war, perceiving the beat generation as so threatening to the status quo that it had to be quickly neutralized and made trivial. Life magazine hired models and did a photo shoot of a typical slovenly beat household, complete with bongo drums, beer bottles, low cut blouses, suspicious looking cigarettes, and a neglected baby in diapers crawling on the floor. A lot of young people thought that relaxed way of living looked like fun. By October, Herb Kane, a West Coast columnist, coined the patronizing word beatnik. The beat generation, as it got co-opted into a lifestyle that anyone could try on and take off like a black beret, became trendy. A novelty company brought out a do-it-yourself beatnik kit that later turned up in flea markets as a vintage collectible. The co-optation process has continued into this century, sometimes under the guise of homage. In London last fall, models in beat menswear desired by Dior paraded down a runway, treading on a facsimile of Jack's on the road scroll. I don't want imitators, Jack would say sternly. He had a disturbing dream about being followed by a mob of avid kids shrilly chanting his name. Fluffnick's fan mail, I remember him saying wearily when I brought him the latest pile of it that had been stuffed into my mailbox. Because he had a deep vein of shyness, he fortified himself by getting drunk before his interviews on TV, which would only make him feel more defenseless when he was grilled about what he was looking for. I'm waiting for God to show me his face, Jack said on Night Beat, sweating in the hot white glare of the NBC studio. Critics associated with the influential Partisan Review, which was being secretly funded by the CIA during the late 50s, were grabbing every opportunity not to take the Beat Generation seriously. While according to the Saturday Review of Literature, a chimpanzee running a temperature had written on the road. Hoping to open the closed mind of Norman Podhoritz, who'd been writing some of the most vehement attacks, 
Allen Ginsberg invited his former Columbia classmate over to my apartment to meet Jack and have a serious talk about the beat generation. I made coffee and left them to it. Just by the rising volume of their voices as I sat in the next room, I could tell it wasn't going well. As Potoris went down the stairs, Alan shouted after him, we'll get your children. Jack was always willing to tell a reporter the story of his breakthrough, how he'd written on the road in only three weeks. Everyone was fascinated by the scroll, which over the years became an icon to his fans. His account of nonstop writing had the elements Americans like to hear about, speed and ingenuity. But in the interest of telling a good story, Jack had left too much out. Those years of fruitless work preceding his breakthrough. This gave some critics the ammunition they needed to dismiss his writing completely. The most devastating put down came from Truman Capote. It's not writing, it's typewriting. As Gertrude Stein reflected in 1938, years after seeing Parisians try to scratch the paint off of Matisse, everything new is ugly. In the summer of 1958, after being attacked and beaten outside a bar on McDougal Street, Jack decided he needed to rest his mind in the brown shingled house he just bought for his mother in Northport, Long Island. There, switching from cheap wine to scotch, he stayed drunk and got nowhere with his next novel, Memory Babe. As he sat in his new writer's study at the oak, top, oak, oak roll top desk he'd always wanted, just gonna wait for this bit of New York to go by. He sent me a line, pay me the penny after from the novel he wasn't writing in case I wanted to use it as a title for mine. Was it a gift or a message, I wondered. In New York, in Northport, he had not found solitude. Carloads of teenagers would arrive to bear him off to their beach parties like a captured trophy. How do you get an apartment in Greenwich Village, a girl of 17 with a perfect tan asked me on my one trip out there, making me feel very old. In the fall, Jack visited me in New York, but I only saw him a few more times after that. I was married and the mother of a three-year-old when I turned on the radio one October evening in 1969 as I was setting the table and heard that he died. I used to wonder what would have happened to Jack if I'd bought a plane ticket with a much earlier date. What if by September we'd moved to a village where it might have taken weeks for news about on the road to reach us? Without Jack's presence, without the interviews, the TV shows, the clamor of fascination with him as a messenger of a very powerful idea that he seemed to embody so perfectly. Would the uproar have died down much sooner? Would Jack have seen more attention paid to what he cared about most, the beauty and on the road? Would that kind of fame have been more survivable? My work is found, he recognized in 1951, as he was starting a second book about his relationship with Neil called Visions of Cody, that would be far more daring in its form and prose than the one he just finished and even less likely to be published. My work is found, my life is lost. He wasn't yet 30. At 23, he had a vision of what his place in American literature could be. It was Labor Day and the war in the Pacific had ended just the day before. As Jack walked through his neighborhood in Ozone Park and Queens, 
families were celebrating in their backyards under a blue September sky, and he could smell the aroma of all the meat they were about to feast on. All this American richness, he'd mused afterward, not for my likes, never. Only in his notebooks did he express such feelings about being a Franco-American. He could never bring himself to talk about them with a friend. That day, with everything momentarily so piercingly clear to him, he named himself a half-American in his notebook and thought that with his outsider's eyes, he would be able to see America better than others. Thank you. Thank you, Joyce. Oh, wow, that was such a beautiful account. Our next speaker is Tim Hunt. His presentation is titled, It's Not How Fast You Type, It's How You Type. Kerouac's Post Print Textuality. Tim Hunt is the author of Kerouac's Crooked Road, Development of a Fiction, and The Textuality of Soul Work, Kerouac's Quest for Spontaneous Prose. He is also the editor of the Collected Poetry of Robertson Jeffers and has published four collections of poetry. Professor Hunt is also an educator, having taught at Illinois State University. He and his wife make their home in Normal, Illinois. We will begin this segment by having Tony Torn read from the book, The Visions of Cody. Composition by Jackie Deleuze, 6B. Now up yonder in Saskahooty, said Deadeye Dick, no, I exaggerate, his name was Black Dan. Up yonder in Saskahooty, said Deadeye Dick, Black Dan, we used to catch suckers every day on Main Street down by the band. You know, the one with the red bricks was standing in front of them. But you introduce, yeah, ain't that right, me, to them two suckers from Edmonton or something? Yeah, that's right. It's when you said that you reminded me. This was in Muscadool, Wyoming, many years ago. Had a circus there where we're making the line from about... Ogala, Nebraska, cleared to the Wilmette Valley. My old lady got sawdust on her dress in Ohio that year. Shucks and goddamn. I'm going to go to Charleston, West Virginia Saturday night or jump in the river. One. But no, wait in here. Don't, don't, you, you don't know I'm serious. You'd think I'm, damn, you, you, you make, you make the most, um, I guess, but now wait a minute till that, but no, I'll jump on in. Mean to, I meant to say, well, about whatever. Well, I swear, I swore, war's home. Just like that little character with Barney Google that used to be Barney Google, the hillbilly, the little ball guy with the jug always yelling, lousy, what do you want to put in my corn cob piper? Or English almost, was it? He, 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 what? No, I wandered that time on Piotl, which is total. I'll tell all, baby, weren't, weren't you laugh? And I had to stop in the, it's really almost impossible to go on. And yet so deciduously silent or something. My dear, says the British noble. My dear, says the British noble, like James Mason at the moon. Thank you, Tony. Uh, now joining us will be Tim Hunt. Thank you, uh, Tony, for that wonderful uh, reading. Um, and I will actually try to make some sense of that passage as this goes on. Forty years ago, the uh, editor of American Literature explained that the journal wouldn't review uh, my then new book on Jack Kerouac because Kerouac wrote pop trash. 
So a book treating him as a literary figure was by definition nonsense. Today, Kerouac is included in the Library of America and taught in university classes, but he's still more outside than inside the canon. To parse how and why this is wrong would take more than time than we have tonight, but I'd like to highlight one factor. We still haven't fully acknowledged that part of Kerouac's significance is that he developed not only a new way to produce writing, but that he explored an altogether new way of understanding what writing can be as a medium. In the passage Tony just read, Kerouac plays with spoken inflections. On the page, dashes, ellipses, and italics signal how the words are to be imagined as heard. In one sense, there's nothing unusual about this. Many writers have gamed the notation to tease us into hearing visual marks on the page as if they're a voice speaking. But there's a fundamental difference in what Kerouac is doing here, and it has to do with time both how he's imagining time as an element in the writing as we read it, and how he's relating to time as he's writing. As I'm talking to you, the time it takes me to say what I'm saying is precisely the amount of time it takes you to hear what I'm saying. But if my comments were written and you were reading them, you'd have no way to correlate between the time it took me to write the passage and the time it took you to read it. In writing, time is a construction, as Friedrich Kittler has noted. Or to put it another way, in a piece of writing, time is represented rather than actual. And this is so even when the writing evokes a character speaking. In speaking, actual speaking, we generate language within time as it elapses. In writing, the writing creates structures that represent time. Time is symbolic. I believe there are two main reasons why this difference between writing and speaking mattered for Kerouac. Um, and of course, the French Canadian aspect of it that uh, we've already been introduced to tonight is very crucial in this. One is that oral storytelling was a vibrant presence in, in the French Canadian neighborhood of his childhood. And he wanted his writing to have the immediacy, as he put it, of men talking in bars. And two, Kerouac came of age in an era where radio, sound recordings, and film came to full cultural prominence, each of them able to record and convey actual voices speaking, performing in real time. Storytelling contributed to Kerouac wanting to be able to write as if actually speaking to a listener, as if Mark Twain were talking to us directly rather than writing to us through the illusion of Huck talking to us. Modern media showed how this could be done if one dispensed with writing by going in the direction of say, Lord Buckley or Will Rogers, or if one treated writing as simply a script for performers. For those who tuned into Orson Welles' radio broadcast of the War of the Worlds, what mattered was the performing voices, not the script, as they listened in belief and disbelief. For Kerouac, becoming a performer a la Lord Buckley or a scriptwriter for radio or a voice actor weren't options. He was committed to writing literature. And the challenge was how to reimagine writing so that it be could become performance in time instead of something used to compose symbolic representations of time. The April 1951 scroll draft was in part an attempt to capture the immediacy of a performing voice by speaking through the typewriter. This in part explains why re readers often feel as if Kerouac is speaking directly through Sal 
and thus directly to them. But performing the voice and recording that performing and typing isn't the same thing as performing writing so that those black notational marks fixed on the page operate as if in time. The type talking of the scroll on the road brings the performing voice to the fore, but at, to some degree at the expense of the performing writer. It didn't fully realize or support what Kerouac was also after, which in the summer of 1951, he termed the lyric alto knowing, which he felt the scroll draft of On the Road lacked. And this leads us back to the passage Tony read for us. It's the opening from the imitation of the tape section in Visions of Cody, where it immediately follows a, a section called Frisco the Tape, taped conversations between Kerouac and Neil Cassidy that Kerouac transcribed and then placed directly into the novel. In spite of the section titles, the imitation of the tape differs radically from the actual tapes. For one thing, the imitation is a monologue, not a dialogue. For another, the associational play of the imitation mixes and blends oral, spoken, and visual written elements in a way that actual conversation cannot. And by the way, that's something that you can partly capture reading it aloud, but you can only fully understand looking at the, the writing on the page, but you can only understand the writing on the page if you also perform it with an ear and voice as Tony just did for us. It's a hybrid. So what matters here uh, is the one significant similarity the sections do share, that is the transcriptions of the tape and the imitation of the tape. In both, time governs the unfolding of language and time in this sense is actual, just as time is actual as I'm speaking to you. Both for the writer writing, time is, and the reader reading, time is actual. And this in turn helps clarify how they differ in these two sections and why the difference matters. In On the Road, Kerouac imagines himself speaking directly to the reader and uses typing to record this. In Frisco the Tape, he records actual tape, he records actual conversations, then later converts them into writing. In both, writing conveys oral action, writing becomes a means to an end. In imitation of the tape, voice is present, but voice is entangled in writing rather than simply conveyed by it. Or perhaps it's more accurate to say that in imitation of the tape, Kerouac makes the radical move of treating writing as if it's performed and governed within time and by time rather than operating apart from it. As a result, writing itself becomes performance. In imitation of the tape, the typewriter is Kerouac's instrument and Kerouac is playing writing just as a musician would use their instrument to play music. And this performing, the how of the typing writing operates within and as time. In the interest of time, a brief illustration will have to suffice. If Kerouac were using writing as a medium to compose rather than perform, he would have to decide whether the character in young Jackie's imagining of up yonder in Saskahootie, Saskahootie, is Dead-Eye Dick, named Dead-Eye Dick or Black Dan. But in performing writing, each gesture leads on to the next. One can add but not back up to erase or replace. A speaker can't unsay, only say more, 
just as a musician can't unplay, but only play on. And so Dead Eye Dick becomes Dead Eye Dick Black Dan, a writerly improvisation that illustrates the performative how of the typing operating within time and as time, while simultaneously showing Kerouac playing with his approach, even as he plays from it. And as he performed this passage on, the, on his typewriter, Kerouac surely knew there were other ways to move on from Dead Eye to Black Dan rather than the improbable melding of Dead Eye Dick Black Dan. But part of what seems the purpose of this imitation of the tape, which could maybe more properly be understood as an overwriting or overspeaking of the tape, is to exploit the improvisational play that performing writing makes possible. And thus, shucks and goddamn, it's Deadeye Dick Black Dan. And in reimagining writing as something governed by time and able to enact, enact and not simply represent time, Kerouac makes it possible for writing to coexist and even interact with contemporary media, recording media. And the brilliance of this, the literariness of this, and the significance of this are as yet only partly recognized and largely unexplored. And as we do explore and recognize these things, we will be forced to recognize Kerouac's brilliance as a kind of an architect of an alternative mode of textuality that infuses much of mid 20th century experimental writing. And then we will see him truly as a literary figure and not a pop culture figure. In closing, I'd like to just add one quick note. As Paul just mentioned, or as Peter just mentioned, Joyce Johnson is responsible for Visions of Cody having been published. We're deeply in Joyce's debt for that. We're doubly in Joyce's debt for preserving the features of the typescript that would usually have been scrubbed away in the publication process. We have Visions of Cody as Kerouac would have wanted it, and so that we can now appreciate its full significance, thanks to Joyce's editorial insight and her determination to present what Kerouac wrote as he wrote it. And uh, thank you very much uh, for your time and for having me here this evening. Well, thank you, Professor Hunt, for that deep dive. Next on our program is Regina Weinreich. Her presentation is titled, I Am Not a Flower. Regina Weinreich is a filmmaker, educator, and widely published cultural critic. She is the author of Kerouac's Spontaneous Poetics, one of the earliest full-scale critical studies of Jack Kerouac's literary work. She edited and compiled Kerouac's Book of Haikus and wrote the introduction to Kerouac's You're a Genius All the Time. She co-produced and directed the award-winning documentary Paul Bowles, The Complete Outsider, and co-wrote The Beat Generation and American Dream. She is a professor in the Department of Humanities and Sciences at the School of Visual Arts at the City University of New York. To begin this segment, Tony Torn will read some of the haikus of Jack Kerouac. Evening coming, the office girl unloosening her scarf. In my medicine cabinet, the winter fly has died of old age. The summer chair rocking by itself in the blizzard. 
run over by my lawnmower, waiting for me to leave. The frog. B. Why are you looking at me? I am not a flower. Thanks, Tony. B was part of a collection of haiku Jack Kerouac put together in a black folder to be published by Lawrence Ferlinghetti at City Lights. In 1959, he recorded some with Al Cohn and Zoot Sims' jazzy backup. Hundreds more embedded in blocks of prose from his pocket notebooks, letters, and other unpublished writings were waiting for me to extract like gold from baser metals when I was asked to edit his book of haikus. I mined these writings for three days at the turn of the millennium in Kerouac executor John Sampas's cat-filled sitting room in Lowell, Massachusetts. Most challenging were the pocket notebooks themselves covered on one side with his distinct tiny scroll and pencil to return on the other side, the paper now aged and translucent, making it harder to discern his words in the flap side shadows and silhouettes of others. Composed from 1956 to 1966, rather than a sideshow to his already infamous career, his work in haiku was a substantial addition, a facet of his dynamic art. And yet, when his book of haikus came out in 2003, while some critics noted Kerouac's craft and keen observations of nature, others saw this publication as another instance of the estate attempting to cash in on Kerouac's minor achievements. For some people, Haiku is a trivial gimmick poem on the order of limericks, but I suspect something else. From the time of my first work on Kerouac in the 1970s, I have understood this dismissal of Kerouac as an attempt to denigrate by those who had the least ability to read his forward-minded language, if they read the books at all. Jack Kerouac may have been criticized for his ragged, ungrammatical prose style in his life, but for his haiku practice, he was considered a master poet, especially by a school of American haiku poets that formed, influenced by him. Eschewing the 17-syllable rule, you know, the one we were all taught in grade school, Kerouac understood after studying the Japanese masters of the form, Basho, Isa, Shiki, and Busan, those he read after R.H. Blythe's translations made them available in English. And he studied uh, the form under Gary Snyder's expert tutelage and reading D.T. Suzuki, he made a discovery actually more of a declaration. In English, haiku requires fewer syllables. I'll invent the American haiku type, he wrote, the simple rhyming triolet. 17 syllables? No. Simple three-line poems. He labored over crafting them, 
as he told his Paris Review interviewers, unlike his first thought, best thought, prose policies. Haiku practice was much more than a syllable count. Observing nature and human nature, infusing his highly honed visions, his discipline incorporated the depth and panorama of his sweeping bop prosody with a new kind of depth. He was going for haiku spirit, the expression of life to death, all of it in a single pop. I'm gonna try this, Tony, you, you read it better. Evening coming, the office girl unloosing her scarf. That office girl, she's you and me in the continuous repetition, all those ings of eternal human activity how many times in a single lifetime is the same action, any action, any routine repeated? He practiced well enough that he had fun with key haiku principles, such as the mandate to reference the seasons, so that the winter fly that has died in his medicine cabinet, what season was that? Or the summer chair rocking by itself in the blizzard was he also breaking his own rule, barring poetic trickery such as personification? He certainly practiced well enough to break the Japanese master's rules, mocking Basho and his signature frog haiku, noting the jump of the frog and the sound the frog makes splashing into the water. Kerouac was not known for laughs, that is, unless Tony's reading him but he was amusing in haiku, especially to himself. So it's maybe an insider joke. He wants to know what would Basho make of his running over a frog with his lawnmower. He further recognized the cut of haiku as liberating for language, a jump he called it, two images set side by side they make a flash in the mind, similar in eliding time to the juxtapositions of William Burroughs' cut-ups. What did Kerouac contribute to haiku? Catholicism. The preoccupations of the non-Buddhist world he knew best. Struggle, drama, suffering, guilt, martyrdom, death. Looking for ways to express eternity in language, haiku gave him a tool for poetry and for prose. Kerouac gave haiku the anguish it needed least. Useless, useless, heavy rain driving into the sea. As he had incorporated his haiku in descriptive passages in the Dharma Bums, when asked to write for Holiday, a, a travel magazine, he wrote in image phrases, what Allen Ginsberg called snapshot poetics. Oklahoma, in any direction, flat, pure, quiet. Cows rushing like dots as though they were as far away as Nebraska. Windmills looking in every direction. He used haiku to illustrate a pervasive Kerouacian figure, a soul fragile individual in a harsh expanse or void.
one flower on the cliffside, nodding at the canyon. Staring at this flower, the bee knew exactly who he was looking at. Thank you. Well, it's a delight to experience yet another aspect of Kerouac. Thank you ever so much, Regina Weinreich. Our next speaker is Anne Douglas, and her presentation is called Kerouac's Poetics of Intimacy. Anne Douglas is a writer, educator, and historian of beat culture. She has been teaching courses on the beats at Columbia University since the 1990s. The author of two books on American culture, she has written extensively on Kerouac for the New York Times, the Nation, and several academic periodicals, as well as writing introductions for Dharma Bums, The Subterraneans, and Joyce Johnson's Minor Characters. She is currently PAR Professor of Comparative Literature, Literature Emerita at Columbia University and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. So we will open this segment with Tony Torn reading part of Jack Kerouac's story, Home at Christmas. Somewhere above the coal black crow is yawking crack, crack. I see the flop of robin twit limbs battering onward through the treetops, twigs of aerial white to a hole in the heart of the forest, to the central pine and pain of my aching desire. The real Christmas is hiding somewhere from me. And it is still, it is holy, it is dark, it is insane. The crow broods there, some nativity darker than Christianity, with wise men from underground, a Virgin Mary of the ice and snow, a Joseph of the trees, a Jesus like a star, a Bethlehem of pine cone, rocks, snakes, stone walls, eyes. But dark gray is the nightfall reality now. I plow my hockey stick in front of me. Sometimes it sinks three feet in culverts holes. I jump and stagger and grind. Now a solid wall of pine is overhead. Through the dark skinny limbs, I can see the lowered gloomy night is overshadowing the blizzard's white shadow. Darker, deeper, the forest descends like a room. Numb buzzing silences ring my ears. I pause to listen. I hear stars. I hear one dog, one farmer door slam a mile away. I hear a hoot of sledders, the keen shrill of a little girl. I hear the tick of snowflake on snow on limb. Ice is forming on my eyebrows. I come, haunting, emerging from the forest, go down the hill to the brook. The stone wall has crystal icing in the heavy winter dim. Black, bleak lines in the sky. My mouth is awed open, vapors puff out. It stops snowing, and I've begun to sense a blue scene in the new night. Soon I see one star above. I reach the brook. It flows under jagged ice caps, black as ink, gurgly silver at the ice rim, cold streaming between blanket white banks to its destinations and rivers down. I follow in the gloom. Our diving boards all white, alone, unsupple, 
stiff-wooded in wintertime. Our trapeze hangs looping, dull, ice-roped. I yell in the one-room world. Thank you. Um, I, too, am very happy to be here on this occasion and so grateful, first of all, to Joyce Johnson for having this idea and collecting the people, and also to you, Peter. You have brought so much heart and intelligence and good feeling to this enterprise. It just makes all the difference in the world. Um, we, we all seem to be united in a, one feeling. We're united in our love of Kerouac, but we're united in another way too, which is the frustration, the anger, and the sadness that Kerouac has not gotten the reputation, that he has not been accepted in the canon, that he is not part of the regular curriculum in the academy, um, as he should be. And if anyone thinks that Kerouac didn't want that, they simply have to read his letters. That's exactly what he was hoping for. He knew the achievement that he had undertaken and successfully carried on. Um, and the heartbreak, there's that painful, painful letter to Robert Lord, to Lord, his agent, um, just saying that it's he's written, I think, right before On the Road, and it's about, I send manuscripts flying into the void, and I never see them again. It doesn't feel like accidental neglect anymore. So the, the pain of that, and of course, having died um, at the age of 47. So I think um, Kerouac said in After Me, The Deluge, his last posthumously, in fact, published essay from uh, 1969. He, he said there, God forbid I dare to call myself the intellectual forebearer of modern spontaneous prose. But of course, that's exactly what he was. He was also a great writer who could bring you to tears, who could bring you to joy, who could open your eyes and reactivate your senses as though you've never really had them activated before. But he was that. And he was also the intellectual forebearer of uh, modern spontaneous prose. And I think we all are happy to have this occasion to go on doing what most of us, a couple of us are pretty young here. I'm thinking of JC and, and um, well, JC is our youngest person here, but which most of us and all of us have been doing all our lives, which is teaching Kerouac. I always tell my students, I taught of course on the beat generation for the first time, I believe it was in 1994, because although I've been teaching works by Kerouac and Ginsburg and Burroughs in other courses, like on the post-war novel, um, they're really at that time, you have to remember this is before computers, before um, you could go online and find anything and download it and print it out way before that, even Xeroxing was fairly complicated. There were legal issues. So until Ann Charters, hello Ann Charters, 
published the portable beat generation reader. And then I believe a year or two later, the Jack Kerouac, the portable Jack Kerouac, it was very hard. Many of the books were out of print Kerouac's works. So that was when I first started teaching a course that was just called The Beat Generation. And I have always told my students that teachers, their professors, have ambitions, not just as scholars or for their reputation or for their passionate love of the subjects they write about. They have ambitions as teachers, meaning that as a teacher, I have wanted to and have done my small part in trying to bring Kerouac to the recognition that he so amply deserves. And I think this wonderful occasion is a celebration of the fact that that is finally happening. And I do thank Hassan and uh, J.C. Cloutier in particular, uh, because they are bringing what we were missing. Joyce certainly wrote and wrote wonderfully about Kerouac's French background more than any other biographer had a Kerouac had done. But most of us, certainly myself, did not really understand. You read Kerouac, he was always talking about the French language, the, you know, I could, uh, words fail him about Mardu, but I could sing her on and on in French. And then, of course, many French phrases that if you knew French as I did, weren't quite the French that you were used to. And then all this has been really brought to life. I could go on and on about, I, I've just been teaching all of you because I'm teaching the regeneration. So I have been teaching parts of essays by every single one of my fellow people on the panel. Let me also point out that I'm very happy that of the nine people who are speaking, only three of us are academics or only academics. Regina is a filmmaker. Joyce, of course, is a major novelist. I want to just add to what has already been said that Joyce's three novels, starting with Come and Join the Dance, followed by Bad Connections, and then I think her masterpiece um, in the Night Cafe, I see them as a trilogy, one of the most important trilogies, in fact, of first-person narrative in American letters in the post-World War II era. So obviously she has that reputation. We know we have several poets on hand here and back of everything, there's Fairland Getty. Uh, I was very honored because I was asked to blurb one of his last books, which I adored. And he wrote me such a lovely note. And I have often felt over the years since he died, um, we have really lost the kind of animating spirit of this movement, a genial animated, animating spirit. And now I see that Peter is also that genial animating spirit. So I'm very happy. Now, I have to say that I have slightly changed or developed, I would say, my topic. Because in calling it the poetics of memory, and picking home at Christmas, um, 
I began to wonder why, unlike so much of Kerouac's writing about his childhood, I was trying to figure out why I've always loved this piece. Joyce may, may remember when we were together at a Lowell Celebrates Kerouac Festival in 1995, and I got a chance to read something. This was the passage I, I picked. Um, so why did I love it so much? How does it fit into the Kerouac canon? And how is it different? And I always misremember the title. I always think it says home for Christmas, and it doesn't. It says home at, uh, at you know, Christmas, sorry, Christmas, um, and you better get this right. Um, home, home, wait, what is it? Home for Christmas, um, which is very different from home at Christmas, which suggests he's been away. Um, I think I'm doing just the opposite. I mean to say that I keep translating it as home for Christmas, because that posits someone who is elsewhere, a wanderer, has some other home, lives somewhere else, um, and is now come back for a holiday, as we all do. And of course, in Kerouac's other great writings about Lowell and his Lowell boyhood. I have to say that that is my, those are my favorites of Kerouac's novels and probably Visions of Gerard is my sacred book of books of all of uh, Kerouac's writing. But in Visions of Gerard or Maggie Cassidy, where of course he's older, he's in high school, he's no longer exactly a child. But Visions of Gerard is punctuated by allusions to how the writer feels as he's writing about his childhood, its tragedy, but also its warmth and its wonder. And he's a bitter man. He's in his cups. He's worth nothing. He was going to write in honor of Gerard, his dead brother, um, who had died when he was four years old. And instead, what has he become? So this shadow, Kerouac, the present in the time of writing, I could go back to some of the points Tim Hunt was making, but um, in the present time of writing, he is exiled from his childhood um, and it's very painful. And what is so striking about home at Christmas is that there is no later Kerouac looking at that, um, contrasting the happiness. And Kerouac's, as I believe it, maybe Tim Hunt first pointed out, but that, or Regina, but that Kerouac's work constantly illustrates a kind of failed dialectic of there's home and then there's travel and there's adventure. You come home to write about it, you travel again. You're always back and forth in some way. And as Joyce has pointed out, Kerouac had this great gift for, um, for believing that his next move, his next adventure was going to be the one, the most wonderful one, and that he'd get there. And as in Mexico and California, he was telling her, don't come, don't come to California. 
California. It's a police state. Um, but uh, here, he's, there is, those choices are taken away. We are completely in his childhood and we are completely in the present. And that made me think about where Kerouac's poetics have powerfully played themselves out. And his greatest intimacy was with the past. He says in um, Town in the City, he says, why is the past so sad? And he answers, because it hasn't any future. That's giving a tremendous power to the past. Um, once outside of it, you're in some limbo, some nightmare. The past has no future. And that, that haunts Kerouac's writing, his writings about the past. But here, the past is for this magic moment. It is the present. And it is Christmas. And Kerouac is a Catholic for all the Buddhist, serious Buddhist writing and thinking and feeling on Kerouac's part. He is deeply a Catholic. Um, and so there are two Christmases here. There's the Christmas that he will return to that we know is his family and the Christmas in which his sister is looking through advertisements and the father is lost in thought and the mother is concentrating on food. He's going to come home to that. You know, thank goodness you came home um, at last. But the other Christmas is this mysterious one that occurs in the forest. And it is so Kerouac. He, he loves piling on descriptions, adjectives and nouns um, in particular, and made up words, words that often favor the elongated vowels um, of Schwab. But here, he, in the passage that was just read so wonderfully by Tony, some nativity darker than Christianity, uh, with wise men from underground, a Virgin Mary of the ice, of Bethlehem, of pinecone, rocks, snakes, stone walls, eyes. And you think, oh, we're going into Kerouac is such a great one for the major key that turns into the minor with all kinds of fascinating blues notes and variations getting from one place to the other. And so you go down the dark skinny limbs, Lord, gloomy night is overshadowing the blizzard's white shadow. All those vowels are coming to work and you think oh, it's coming, the bop bop that stops the flow, puts an exclamation point on it, only in order to store up for more belief, as Kerouac would say, and to go into another. So we get to darker, deeper, the forest densens like a room. Kerouac loved rooms. That was part of the intimacy, um, that you enclose the space. Uh, he saw Times Square, as a great big outside room, which I've never been able to be in Times Square, at least when it used to be Times Square, without thinking of. 
But then uh, we get down the, the trapeze. There's so many moments when it's kind of right on the brink of going into this pastness, the, the past that has no future. And it ends up, Tony read it wonderfully, oh, I yell in the one room world. The whole world has become domestic space. All these, um, when he says it is still, it is holy, it is dark, it's insane. And you sense the underlying nightmare that's about to erupt. But here, it's not contained in the sense of forbidden or repressed. It is that this is the piece in which Kerouac is truly writing in the present. Now, I just want to say a word about how I um, divide Kerouac's writings. And there's always been a debate, should you treat them chronologically, thematically, by stylistic development? Um, and I think uh, Coolidge is so right in calling it memory writing. And he gives one Clark Coolidge in his review of Van Charter's um, portable Jack Kerouac. Um, and again, we remember that he had the nickname Memory Babe, and he remembered everything. Um, but belatedness dubbed Kerouac at every level. Belatedness in that there was a painful gap between what he wrote, these manuscripts he was sending into the void with no response back, and their publication. Most acutely, of course, as Joyce was discussing, uh, his most famous, not his best book by any matter, um, but his most famous book on the road, six years between the time of writing. But if you look at them, you find similar gaps elsewhere as well. So my division is first the books about that he wrote right after he had the experiences and Two of them, at least, were published right away. One was Dharma Bums, and the other was Big Sur, because, of course, he'd made a name for himself with On the Road in 1957. Subterraneans, which he wrote in, is it 52 or 53? I realized I couldn't remember, um, but that didn't get published till 1959. But that's, you know, it, it came out, and there were other reasons that it... Um, it was a censorship issue as well. And then there are the books that are published so late, so after they have been written, so that what had been written about a recent past, like On the Road or Visions of, of Cody, didn't see the light of day for six years in one case, and has already been mentioned, Joyce Johnson's heroic, heroic, uh, bringing every word and every aspect of Visions of Cody to the public. I remember that I once asked Joyce reading, I was reading Ginsburg's commentary and that wonderful free-flowing associated um, first thought, best thought, or at least second thought suggested by the first thought is best thought, uh, commentary that rose all over the place. And I said, you know, did you edit it at all? Did you feel you should prune it a little? And she said, 
I would never change a word Allen Ginsberg wrote. That is, that is what is needed um, in dealing with great writers. And so anyway, so the ones that were published so late, and then, and this may be why they're very charmed, is that yes, some of them didn't get published right away, the Lowell narratives, my favorite. Um, but of course, they were about his childhood. So there was already a kind of workable pastness about these narratives and about Kerouac's feelings about them. And um, I, 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 well, I, I love them all. Um, and each of them has just amazing things that, that no, no other, um, I know other has. Um, but so I'm wrapping up now. I wanted to try to speak more or less spontaneously, um, but I'm teaching Kerouac right now. So that means I've been completely immersed in him for the last five weeks. And it's a wonderful, wonderful place to be. I think some of my students are there with me um, at any rate. And I will just tell you in closing that I had the most amazing class yesterday with my students. We were actually finishing our second class on, on the road. Um, and we spent most of the time just on that last paragraph. And we got very interested in, don't you know, that uh, God is Winnie the Pooh. And my question was, can you possibly, that last paragraph, and this has been often noted, owes a good something to the close of Gatsby's, uh, of Gatsby by Fitzgerald, which of course ends with the green breast of the new world as the Dutch explorers first saw it. And then so we beat up on boats against the past, uh, one back ceaselessly into the past, boats against the current. Um, and it's, it's clear to me anyway that that was ringing somewhere in Kerouac, subconscious or conscious. But what changes everything, of course, is don't you know that God is Pooh Bear? Um, well, almost no one knows that God is Pooh Bear. Try imagine putting something like that in the last paragraph of the great, the great Gatsby. And before you know it, my students came up with, actually the, the man A.A. Milne is it, who wrote when who was Canadian. And one association after another, pretty soon we realized that Winnie the Pooh was one of the great influences um, on, um, on On the Road. So thank you again, Joyce and everyone who's contributed. Um, I am so happy to be honoring Kerouac and his staggering achievement on his centennial. Thank you. Thank you, Anne Douglas, for yet another insightful window into the words of Kerouac. Our next speaker is Anne Charters. Her presentation is titled At Kerouac's Centenary. Anne Charters is professor of American literature at the University of Connecticut at Storrs. She is a Jack Kerouac and Beat Generation scholar. 
Professor Charters worked with Jack Kerouac to compile his bibliography and was the only biographer who had access to Kerouac and interviewed him about the circumstances in which he wrote his books. She edited Jack Kerouac's posthumous poetry titled Scattered Poems. She is also the editor of numerous volumes on the Beats and 1960s American literature, including The Portable Beat Reader, the portable Jack Kerouac, amongst many others. We are so very honored to have her back with us after many, many years, even though it's virtual, really such a delight. To start this segment, Tony Torn will read an excerpt from Desolation Angels. Standing desolate on an empty road in Washington State, waiting for a 4,000 mile ride in 1956, it's a bright September day with hazeish heat, a little too hot. I wipe my brow with a red bandana and I wait. Here comes a car. I thumb it. Three old men. Whoop! It stops down a ways and I take off after it with my pack on one shoulder. Where you going, son? Asked the kindly hawk-nosed old driver with his pipe and mouth. The other two are keenly interested. Seattle, I say. 99, Mount Vernon, San Francisco, all the way. Well, we can take you a ways. Turns out they're going to Bellingham on 99, but that's north of my route, and I figure I'll get off when they turn onto the Skagit Valley, Route 17. Then I sling my pack in the back seat and get in the front seat, crowding the two old boys up there without thinking, without realizing the one next to me won't like it. I can feel him stiffen up in interest after a while. Well, meanwhile, I'm talking to beat the band, answering all questions about the backcountry on Desolation Peak. How strange these three old buddies. The driver is the stolid, fair-haired, willing one who has decided to abide by God, and they know it. Next to him, his oldest partner, also God straight, but not so keen on kindness and gentleness. A little suspicious of the all-around motive. It's all these angels in the void. Back seat is a two-time regular card, meaning he's all right, but he's taken the back seat in life to watch and be interested, like me. And so, like me, he's got a little bit of the fool in him and a little bit of the moon goddess, too. Finally, when I say, uh, there's a nice breeze blowing up there in the mountain, to cap a long talk, as hawk nose veers the curves, none of them reply. Dead silence. And I, young witch doctor, have been instructed by the three old immortal Buddhas who know silence, so I clam up. And there's a long silence as the good car zings along, and I'm being ferried to the other shore by Dharmakaya Buddhas, all three, really one, with my arm draped over the right-hand door and the wind blowing in my face, and from the excitement of seeing the road after months among rocks, I dig every cottage and tree and meadow along the way. The cute little world God's whipped up for us to see and travel and movie in. The self-same harsh world that will wring our breath from our chests and lay us in deadened tombs at last. And us no complain, or better not. Chekhov's angel of silence and sadness flies over our car. Thank you very much. That was really great. It was wonderful to hear it read, especially by, by Tony. That was beautiful. I'm not going to talk much. Uh, I just want to talk about the passage, the Kerouac passage, because 
I think it's extraordinary. And it explains why I keep reading Jack Kerouac all these years. Um, I first became uh, attracted to his story. Uh, and then I worked with him in Hyannis and he teased me. He thought I'd been seduced by what he called that fancy prose of mine. But it's more than his freewheeling prose style. Sometimes his narrative voice seems to echo my own responses to life. For example, in the Dharma Bums, when he describes several months in Berkeley and Marin County in 1955-56. This was a place in a time that I also experienced as paradise during the years when I was an undergraduate at the University of California and falling in love with Sam Charters. But this passage from Desolation Angels is from part one, section 62. It's more than halfway what Jack called his legend of Dilawas, his long life story. And it describes an event in September, 1956, the day after he came down from Desolation Peak in the Cascade Mountains of Washington State. That summer, Jack had spent 63 days alone as a fire watcher on a mountaintop. There he discovered he didn't possess the emotional resources he needed to deal with his feelings of isolation. Instead of the spiritual breakthrough he sought through solitude and study of Buddhism, in his best moments, he dreamt of the happiness he'd find when he returned to civilization. As usual in his life, he was too hard on himself. His dreams were his truest reality. So in the passage you just heard in Desolation Angels, he's describing his first ride, getting back on the road. It's pure classic Kerouac, a brilliant blend of fact, memory, dream, and reflection. At this point in his story, he's 34 years old and doesn't know that this will be his last long trip as a hitchhiker. He's headed south 4,000 miles, dreaming of rides to Seattle, San Francisco, and Mexico City. But he thumbs his first ride on a back road with three old men who initially listen to him while he talks to beat the band, answering their questions about his experience as a fire watcher. Inside the car, he's crowded himself as the third person on the front seat next to an open window. It's suffocatingly hot. And after a while, he notices that the others have grown silent. They've lost interest in what he's saying. He realizes that he's drifted into banality. There's a nice breeze blowing up there on the mountain. So he stops talking. In the car, Kerouac has done what any hitchhiker would do. He sizes up three strangers who stop for him on the road. And he decides they must be old friends who abide by God, since the driver did a good deed by offering a ride. Still immersed in his study of Buddhism, Jack envisions them as the three old immortal Buddhas who know silence. And he imagines they'll ferry him to the other shore. Riding in silence, he turns to the domestic landscape outside the windows of the car. It's a comforting sight. 
after the wildness of his mountaintop. Then as the ride continues, he becomes increasingly aware of what he senses as a long dead silence growing between him and the three strangers. His thoughts turn darker. And that's when I encounter one of the things that keeps me reading Kerouac. It's his intertextuality or a reference to the words of another author. Kerouac writes that, quote, Chekhov's angel of silence and sadness flies over our car, unquote. My first thought is, where did that come from? I love Chekhov's writing, but I can't remember reading these particular words. I put down Desolation Angels, pick up my cell phone, Google Chekhov's Angel of Silence, and I find a reference to his play, The Seagull. Reading Act One, I discover that the words are given to the doctor in the play. He speaks them after a heavy silence has followed the usual miscommunication between the self-absorbed characters on stage. The quotation from Chekhov's adds another dimension to Kerouac's description. Of course, it's a sign that he's no ordinary hitchhiker, but more important, it introduces something new that expands the meaning of his story. It suggests his reaction to the ups and downs of ordinary life. The Chekhov citation shows Kerouac's mind in a moment of reflection, illuminating his emotional response to mundane everyday reality after his dreamlike adventure in the Cascades. His true story novels are remarkable because they are as much concerned with his consciousness as they are with factual events. Kerouac quoting Chekhov, I hadn't noticed it before, prompts a good feeling in me, similar to realizing for the first time that one of my friends really likes another. What else will I discover in Kerouac's true story negatives, or narratives? That's why I continue to read him. I want to end this with something that Marcel Proust said. He was another one of Kerouac's favorite authors. And he wrote in The, Resemb the Remembrance of Things Past about the importance of literature. To my mind, his words reveal Kerouac's vital importance as a writer and explain why we celebrate him on his 100th birthday. Proust wrote, quote, in reality, every reader while she is reading is the reader of her own self. The writer's work is merely a kind of optical instrument which he offers to the reader to permit her to discern what without the book she would perhaps never have seen in herself. The reader's recognition in her own self of what the book says is the proof of its truth. And that's Kerouac. Ann Charters, a great pleasure and an honor as always. Thank you for those words. To cap off this part of the evening, we have 
One final presentation. Uh, the wonderful David Amram prepared a special video for us to wish Jack a happy birthday. Uh, David Amram recently turned 92 years of age. He was a very close friend of Kerouac's. David is a composer, arranger, conductor of orchestral chamber, choral works. Uh, he's worked with, you know, directors like Elia Kazan and John Frankenheimer. And I mean, everyone from Thelonious Monk all the way through to Mingus, you name it. Uh, very significant is that in 1957, he collaborated with Jack Kerouac on New York's first jazz poetry reading, David playing the French horn. So the following year, David appeared in the iconic Robert Frank and Kerouac film collaboration, Pull My Daisy, and contributed the title song. Um, Kerouac's nickname for David was Sunny Dave. So David is still on the road. He's still performing. Yeah, he couldn't be with us tonight, sadly. But I will share his video message with you now. Well, here we are on this special night. We could call it Joyce Johnson Day because Joyce was the one who put this all together. So all of us could say the scholars, the authors, the poets who are here with us tonight. But finally, on the centennial year of Jack, get a chance to say it right because he was an author, and every book that he wrote still lives with us all these years later today. And that means that he was doing it creatively in his own very, very special way. So when we're celebrating Jack, let's remember it wasn't only because of his brilliance as celebrity and great good looks. It was because of the quality and the integrity and the beauty of each of his books. Well, I don't want to go on too long or more than enough for this song. There's only certainly I have to say in order not to seem certifiably crazy. That's just our 2022 intro to Pull My Daisy. Pull my daisy, tip my cup. My doors are open. Hop my heart for coconuts. All my doors are open. Hop my heart, son, hop my light. Sarah's hold me steady. Hip my angel, hop my light. Lay it on the beating. Hop my heart, son, hop my light. Sarah's hold me steady. Hip my angel, hop my light. Lay it on the beating. Well, when Neil and Alan and I wrote the song back in 1959, we never thought we'd be here tonight on Zoom with whoever whom tuned in to hear this tune so we could get it right. And we hope that when you go home, you'll be creative too. And I'm sure that the very best that you can do is something you haven't done yet, so get on it now. And you will sometime get it out somehow. Jack had to wait a long, long time. It seemed there was no reason to rhyme. It didn't make any difference anyway because Jack finally had his say.
son hurt my legs, lay it on the needy, hip my angel hurt my legs, lay That's the way we used to scat sing, just like Adam playing on the cougar drums if no one else showed up. We'd find a way to do it anyway. So for all of you who want to write, paint, play, sing, find a way to exercise your creativity as Jack did and do it in your own way and do your own thing. Let's all pull our day. Amram going strong. Boy, that was such a treat. Um, so to wrap this evening up, I would like to invite all of our participants to reflect a little on, on, on you know, where we've gone tonight and um, just have some kind of final, you know, comments, reflections, anything that comes to mind. Um, I'm going to bring you all into the picture now. Well, that was amazing. Thank you, everybody. Uh, happy birthday, Jack, too. I'm just reading all of the comments that are pouring in. It's just, this has been uh, a good time for a lot of people. It was certainly fun for me. Thank you for inviting me. Joyce, it was a good idea after all, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> You know, it was wonderful hearing all, hearing everybody. Wonderful. I think we had had a party for Jack. We have. Happy birthday, Jack. Happy birthday. Hey, Jack. That's yeah. even that's pretty impressive. David Amram, 92, we'll get there too. Happy birthday, Jack. <laughs> yeah, happy birthday to Jack. And I just want to say that everyone was so brilliant. I feel like even after decades of reading and studying Kerouac's work, that I got so much out of hearing all of these presentations tonight. There's always so much more. I think I was so lucky when I wrote my doctoral dissertation on Jack. I had <laughs> Tim Hunt's book. I had Ann Charter's biography. And that's about it. I was lucky for that. Now there would be a mountain of work for people to pour through. It would be fascinating and just amazing, uh, but a very long uh, task. And uh, I loved the reading in 
French Canadian and hearing David play at the end, I was reminded that David does such an incredible impersonation of uh, Jack speaking in French. And over the years, I thought, oh, David is, is just being funny. He's being a little crazy. And now I realize what it was. So thank you for all of those uh, insights. I'm so grateful to all of you. Uh, can I say something? Please. Oh, thank you. Um, all of, I'm just seconding what everyone has just said. I think, I think Jack would be very happy um, if you were <laughs> looking down on this. And because I didn't get to say it, I just want to say the last line of Home at Christmas. Uh, which is the witless winter bird with his muffly feathers inward. My sleep is deep in the New England wintertime night. Rest peacefully and happily, Jack, and happy centenary to you. Anybody else? I'll add one quick comment. And that is that the talks tonight went in a number of different directions. And I think that's one of the ways that we understand the significance of Kerouac as a writer. Uh, great writers require multiple perspectives, multiple modes of engagement. We have not overall given Kerouac the respect that he deserves in spite of all the work that has now been done. Um, but what we're doing here tonight is we're mapping different directions that need to be extended. And I think of among those, the most important, because in part, it, in part it's the newest uh, aspect of what we've been seeing in, in Kerouac studies, uh, but it's also the most fundamental which is the work of, of treating him significantly and, and seriously uh, as a bilingual, bicultural, multicultural writer. Um, you know, that to me has, has so much richness um, that feeds into everything else that, that the rest of us are, are doing and, and have done. Mm -hmm. I agree, I totally agree. And one of the reasons perhaps for Jack's lack of academic acceptance is that there were so few books. They, I mean, there were books coming out, but the academic response is necessary um, to get give weight. And that's certainly true now. There's, there are enough books. And I think that we're going to see a change mm -hmm. in, the, in, in, in how he's um, at. Not that the academy is so necessary. I mean, but it does. It, it's better than fashion shows. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just like um, to say that one reason uh, I, th I think the, the appreciation and understanding of Jack has been so long delayed is that for so many years, uh, his archive was unavailable. Right, that's for over, important. For, yeah. over, over 40 years. And, and you know, uh, when I 
when I when I when I wrote my you know I was constantly running into these draconian permissions problems. Uh, when I wrote my memoir, I was uh, you know refused permission to quote from any of the letters that Jack might have written me, <laughs> and it went on it went on from there. And so you know it's it, it's when you begin to study the archive that you see how you know, how important, how huge the whole subject of his Franco-American identity was. It wasn't something that Jack talked about to people. It was something that he sort of kept locked up inside him and he wrote about it. it you know, it would come out in his notebooks and in, and in his French writings, but you wouldn't know it was there until you began to study the archive. And I would like to say to the Kerouac estate, which is now under new management, it's time to really have a much more liberal policy regarding the quoting of the archival material by qualified writers and scholars. Don't keep it, don't, 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 don't withhold that permission any longer. It's taken too long. It's done too much damage to Jack's reputation. It's terrible to continue that policy. But I'm, I'm hoping that there'll be a, a, a new sort of openness so that uh, the people who, who are writing seriously about Jack will have the ability to, to quote what they need to make their work first rate. That's what I hope. That would be the best birthday present to Jack on his 100th birthday yes. is what he would have wanted. Yes. That's Amen. what and here, here, absolutely true. Absolutely. And I also, and I also I, just add with that uh, another a present that Kerouac left us is precisely that archive that he meticulously kept his writings and, and invented his own meticulous, uh, you know, alphanumeric system for his own uh, material so that, uh, so he wanted people to, to go and visit his archive and visit it. So just to echo what, what Joyce has said and everyone, that part of the gift that he left us is, of course, his books, but also his archive, which is inseparable from the rest of the, the body of work. And I just want to say how moved uh, I am this evening by what everyone has done tonight and to have been part of this great kind of genial community with that zenith of, of David Amram, always giving that, that such that beautiful joy of, of life and creativity back into this, which is also something that all of you has done for me in my work, uh, really keeping the flame alive uh, for all these years. And I never dreamed of one day meeting you, let alone you know, share a stage with all of you. So it's really a beautiful thing. I hope, I, I do think that uh, um, uh, Jean-Louis Tijan would be very happy. And um, yes, let's keep the, his, his work alive and open up the, the archive that he, that he kept for us. Thanks. Yes, and um, if I may say something now, I, uh, let's see. Yeah, uh, I'm often the very, uh, very disciplined scholar. I speak in scholarly terms about scholarly things. I, 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 I uh, spent many, many weekends, many weekdays in the archive. Yeah, but tonight I decided to open with something very personal because Jack, I mean, that's how he affects so many of us as, as, as sophisticated. And I think one of the things that come out came out tonight in so many people's uh, descriptions and analyses and accounts uh, 
is writing it an extremely sophisticated understanding of how writing works and how language works. But with all that, and almost because of all that, he touches so many of us so personally. It's such a personal encounter with a writer that few that I've had with very, very few other writers. And I've I've studied and written scholarly articles on many. And I I that is. That, 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 that's something that just shouldn't ever be forgotten about Jack Kerouac is the very personal touch he brings to his writings from so many different perspectives. And, and almost, I think that in the, the way he developed his writing, the way, he, the way he thought about language, the way he thought about exactly what to say, the way he thought about the way he was going to put it down, he was always thinking about touching people personally. <clears throat> and this is something that should never be forgotten about him. I mean, it's, it, it, it can't be forgotten about him. It can't be forgotten about him. Well, thank you. It was, it was wonderful to share the stage with all of you. I'm so happy to have met all of you in my, in my scholarly career, which, which doesn't have that many highlights, but all of you, are part of a number of them. Thank you. Could I just add one thing? Because I, I'm the person who quoted the line from Town and City about why is the past so sad? Because it hasn't any future. But of course, his books, however sad they, some of them may be, do have a future. And the future is us, the reader. And that is the greatest intimacy. I think as, as you just so eloquently said that Kerouac uh, has brought, and I have never had any other author who spoke to me, who got into not just my mind and my heart, but my bloodstream. Thanks. You know, before we wrap up, I, I, I wanna bring Tony into the discussion because Tony, you act as kind of like the Greek chorus or maybe mm. the French chorus <laughs> uh, for the evening. Well, what, having gone through so much material tonight and, and what's this been like for you? Well, it's been marvelous. You know, um, I, uh, I first began reading Kerouac uh, when I was um, a teenager um, in Joyce's house because I was good friends with her son, Daniel, both me and my brother, John. And so obviously it was kind of a very powerful thing to be first reading those books pulled off her, her shelves. And then um, of course, you know, my mother and father also uh, knew Alan quite well. And so um, I've been, the words have been living with me for a long time. And when we did Door Wide Open, we had an actor named John Ventimiglia who did a wonderful job as Kerouac. So I was a little nervous uh, because, um, you know, he he was kind of celebrated for really capturing his uh, vocal quality. But I just went back to my deep love for the work, you know, and especially that sort of memory brave Proustian aspect of it. I just really, really <clears throat> love. And there are things that I got to read here like the the French material in the home for Christmas that I've never seen before. So it was uh, a really great opportunity to uh, deepen my uh, knowledge of the kind of language that's possible within uh, Kerouac's uh, corpus. 
and to hang out with all you fantastic people and listen to uh, everything we've talked about tonight. So, yeah, it was a it was a great experience. Well, thank you, Tony. I mean, it really kind of helped kind of round things out and 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 punctuate, you know, everyone's presentation. And uh, we're just so ever grateful to you all. I mean, um, just for the loving care that you really have put into these presentations and charters, John Christoph and Douglas, Tim Hunt, Hassan Malehi, Regina Weinreich, and of course, David Amram for that wonderful, wonderful video. And really, finally, you know, Joyce, for bringing us together and for all your efforts, you know, in, in making this happen. A very huge shout out to the wonderful Paul Slovak at Viking Penguin for all of his efforts over the years in, in trying to keep Kerouac's work alive. Uh, and finally, oh, yeah. finally, thanks to all of you in the audience for your enthusiasm and interest in this work and going beyond hype and going beyond, you know, kind of the, the personality of Kerouac, but really beginning to, you know, create a kind of a road by which we can all appreciate the work itself and in relation to the man. So we hope this has whetted your appetite and you can go out there and, you know, check out some of the hitherto lesser known works by Kerouac. And of course, Sodi Lights has a full selection. We posted links in the chat and, but come on down to the store too. I mean, to pick up a book in person, there's nothing quite like it. We're open now seven days a week from noon to 8 PM. Come down and browse our stacks. Tonight, in San Francisco, don't we? Yeah, please, please. We would, you know, that's the thing that I think I'm going to miss is that, you know, the only regret tonight is not being able to take everyone out for for some dinner <laughs> and hang out. No, Chinese, Maybe we can all hit up in our different areas. I know me, yes. Joyce, and Regina uh, are all in New York, and uh, David's upstate. I don't know who else is in New York, but uh, exactly. we can do an East Coast, and then you guys can do a West Coast. It'd be fabulous. Yeah. So rain check, rain check for sure. So this evening's event was made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation which is continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti into the future by developing events like this one, a publishing program, educational outreach, which is really dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and of course, independent thinkers. So everyone, thank you for joining us again. Please remain safe, remain well. We hope to see you soon. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.